This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. All we need to do, Scripture says, is to simply identify, admit, acknowledge our sins to God the Father, and He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. However, if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the issue for you is simply to trust in Christ as Savior. But for the believer, the solution to ongoing sin in the Christian life is to simply confess sin, to identify it to God. We recover fellowship. We're restored. Uh, we recover the filling of the Holy Spirit. We're restored to fellowship so that we can resume our Christian advance. So let's uh, bow our heads together for a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Father, we do thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together today and the freedom that we have guaranteed by the uh, Constitution Bill of Rights of this nation. We thank you for our forefathers who had the foresight, the moral courage, and the understanding of reality that they had based on your word to establish a, a republic of this type. We thank you for the uh, those who went before them, the Puritan forefathers and the uh, others who came and settled uh, the colonies here because of their strong commitment to the truth of your word and the impact that that had on the culture that, that, that was established in this nation. Father, we thank you for our freedom. We pray that, that we may continue to go on with the freedom that we have, that you would continue to watch over and protect this nation, watch over our president, uh, members of Congress, other leaders and military and civilian life, those who are in charge of security at airports and other places in this nation, give them inside wisdom and, and that they may see what they need to see in order to protect us. Father, we continue to pray for us as believers that we might not uh, grow weary in our advance in the Christian life, but that we might recognize that, that uh, ultimately the issue is, is what do we do with the entire time that we have on earth, that we might be steadfast and immovable in our advance to spiritual maturity, recognizing that eventually we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, not to determine if we're saved, but to determine our eternal rewards and position in the coming kingdom. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that we might be challenged, 
by the things that we study, that we might have a greater understanding of, of your plans and purposes for our lives and where we are headed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 1, and we continue our study in the introduction to the final book in the Bible and the final book in the canon of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, that is the revelation from Jesus Christ. Although it is about Jesus Christ, as I have emphasized, the genitive there is a genitive of source or is a uh, subjective genitive and not an objective genitive. It's not the revelation about Jesus. That's not what that phrase means. It is a revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show or display or manifest to his servants. Things which must take place uh, in quick succession. That's the idea that once these things begin to take place, they will take place in quick succession. And he communicated it by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Notice those phrases. We will hit them several times as we go through the first three chapters. John is giving a deposition, as it were. Uh, he bears witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. The things that, as we saw, that's the structure of the book of Revelation. The things which you have seen, which is what is covered in chapter one. The things which are, that's Revelation two and three. The various cycles and trends of church history, and and then the things which shall take place after this, which is the future part of the book of Revelation, Revelation four through the end of the book. Verse three we saw is a blessing. Blessed is he who reads, that is the expositor of the text. This is the public reading of Revelation, the public teaching of Revelation, that which the pastor would do. So there's a blessing for the pastor and for those who hear the words of the prophecy and keep the things which are written in it. Not just those who hear it, but those who hear it and keep the things that are written in it. For the time is near, warning, a sense of urgency here, as I have pointed out, that the coming of Christ is imminent. Even if, uh, even if He doesn't come in our lifetime, we may die tomorrow, die the next day, and so it's just as real for us. And then John, that's the uh, basic introduction or prologue. Then we have the introduction of verse 4, the salutation, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you, and peace from God the Father who is described by a a three-part or tripartite title from him who is and who was and is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, that's the designation of the Holy Spirit, and from Jesus Christ, who is described by two triplets, two titles, each of three parts. First, he is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And then secondly, in a dedication, he is described as the one who loves us, and washed us from our sins by means of his own blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So this is the introduction. And as I have gone through this, and I'm studying way ahead into the second and third chapters, there are two basic doctrines that underlie everything in the book of Revelation that really bring it home to us. And that is why I've camped out 
couple of times on that phrase at the end of verse 3, for the time is near, the time is at hand. There's an urgency here. There is a sense of our destiny that something is going to happen that is going to bring all of human history to a culmination that will involve several judgments. And as we have seen in our study before, we have a judgment or evaluation for believers at the judgment seat of Christ. And we'll spend a lot of time on that when we get into Revelation 2 and 3 and the seven letters to the seven churches because each letter ends with a statement of about the rewards and blessings that are to those who become mature believers, those who are overcomers in Revelation 2 and 3. But this and this whole thing relates to what we call our personal sense of our eternal destiny. If we if you haven't had that jacked up about 15 notches by the time we get through with our study of Revelation, then you're not listening. And this really emphasizes our destiny in heaven to return with Jesus Christ as that purified bride and to rule and reign with him in the millennial kingdom and on into eternity because the millennial kingdom, as it were, is only the sort of the antechamber to eternity, the, the foyer to eternity. It's the entry point and eternity just goes from there on. But it's not like the administration of the kingdom of God changes uh, subsequent to that. So the first thing is what we talk about is our personal sense of our eternal destiny. And the second is our occupation with Christ. This comes through more and more as we go through this study, the focus on Jesus Christ. And as John, who is the one to whom this revelation is given was so close to our Lord when, when he was on the earth during the time of the Incarnation. John was very young, very, uh, and, and he was, from my study, I think he's a first cousin or second cousin of our Lord. He is, uh, his mother was a, a sister to Mary. So they are family. Nevertheless, uh, uh, John is overwhelmed when he sees the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ in this chapter, and this is the risen, glorified Lord returning as the judge of the earth. So we have judgment indicated for the churches. There is judgment on the earth as the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb and the wrath of God are poured out upon the earth. And wrath is a term of divine judgment. So there is judgment during the tribulation period. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and on the earth today, you don't have to worry about the tribulation. For we will be raptured, whether we are alive at that time or not, we're raptured. Believers in the church age do not go into the tribulation. And then there will be another judgment, as we've seen. There's the judgment at the end of the tribulation, the evaluation of the believers in the tribulation, as well as unbelievers who survived the tribulation. And then there's the final great white throne judgment for all the unbelieving dead that takes place at the end of the millennial kingdom. So we have this sense of destiny on the one hand, and on the other hand, our occupation with Christ. Now, let me fit this into what we've studied a tremendous amount in the past, and that is the the dynamics of the spiritual life. Because uh, we have what we've taught as our uh, problem-solving devices, or what I call uh, stress busters. And these problem-solving devices are simply different spiritual skills 
that we learn, that we've extrapolated from Scripture, and that we uh, discipline ourselves to apply in terms of spiritual growth. And it starts off with those basic skills that we learn in childhood. This is what we studied in First John, when John talked about little children, the, the technon. We first learned that after we're saved that we can, we can lose fellowship pretty quickly. We still sin. That shocks some folks. The Christians can still sin. And they get uh, all upset when they see some Christian do something. I got in a discussion with a, I won't mention his name, but uh, a, a rather well-known uh, uh, <clears throat> theologian, Bible teacher one time, and we were talking about Noah. And I said, well, what do you think about that episode in Genesis 9 where Noah goes out and he gets drunk and he comes in and has that episode with uh with Ham coming in, leaving him uncovered, and going out and joking with the brothers about his father's uh, drunken nakedness. And he said, well, you know, he said, I, I think that, that, uh, that Noah could not have sinned. Uh, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a sin, it was an accident. Because no, Hebrews says that Noah was a righteous man. No righteous man is going to let alcohol touch his lips. You know, that's a really old view, but the point was made in a conversation I had with Dan. And Dan brought out the point, he said, so the problem here is Christians don't sin, or believers don't sin. Right? Because whether it's drunkenness or whether it's some other sin, well, your basic underlying assumption there is that if you're really a believer, there are some sins you can't commit or you just don't sin. And we know that's wrong. We're still going to sin, and God knows that, so he gives us a grace provision that... Uh, that after salvation, when we sin, we don't lose salvation, but we do break fellowship with God. And so all we have to do is to admit or acknowledge, identify those sins to God. The Greek is homologeo, a legal term for simply identifying or admitting the guilt of something. Yes, I did it. When we confess, we're immediately... Uh, filled with the Spirit, and we begin to walk by the Spirit again. Now, if you sin again 30 seconds later, well, you're just going to be out of fellowship again. Then you have to confess. See, that we all go through that. And as immature baby believers, you go through that a lot. You don't stay in fellowship for long. And hopefully, as you learn some of uh, the Word of God and begin to grow, you'll begin to stay in fellowship a little more, a little more, a little more. So we have our ongoing walk by the Spirit, and we learn to walk in dependence upon the Spirit. We do that because we begin to learn promises. And as we learn those promises, we begin to trust God, and we rely upon Him. We call that the faith rest drill. And as we depend upon God, and we learn to discipline ourselves, that as soon as we get in certain situations, we claim certain promises, then we begin to grow. And and that spiritual life is based on those many promises that God gave us uh, in the sufficiency in the, in the sufficient Scripture in Second Peter one, three and four. Then, as we grow, we learn something about grace. That our walk with God is not dependent upon who and what we are, but it's dependent upon who Jesus Christ is, what He did at the cross, and what is given to us at salvation. We get it all at salvation. You don't get a little more of God later on. He's not doesn't. Uh, dish out His grace incrementally to the believer. But we're given the Holy Spirit who indwells us, seals us, uh, has baptized us into the body of Christ, all at the instant of salvation. The issue in spiritual growth is to learn about those uh, spiritual provisions and spiritual assets 
so that we can begin to utilize them in spiritual growth. And that is part of doctrinal orientation, where we begin to orient our thinking to the Word of God. Second Peter 3.18 says that we grow by means of the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the Word of God that is used in conjunction with the Holy Spirit that produces growth. The Holy Spirit teaches us the Word, uh, brings it to our mind in memory to apply, and He's the one who produces spiritual growth. Second uh, Peter, or First Peter 2, 1-2-2 2, 2 says that we are to desire the sincere milk of the Word that we may grow by it. So that's the emphasis on studying the Word. Well, as we go out of spiritual childhood, we all get to a point where we have to recognize that there's more to life than what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day. You see that in your kids. You know, when they're young, they just think in terms of today, what's going to happen in an hour. Uh, They don't think in terms of next week. And, you know, I always remember my mother saying, you have to think past the end of your nose. Well, eventually you begin to think past the end of your nose, and you that's when you're going through spiritual adolescence. You begin to think in terms of longer-range consequences. Where am I headed? Making decisions today in light of long-range plans. And so we call this a personal sense of our eternal destiny, where we begin to make decisions today in light of eternity. We begin to think in terms of the fact that we're in boot camp, spiritual basic training, God is teaching us all of these things to prepare us for our role to rule and reign with Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom and on into eternity. See, we're just being trained. The things that we can learn now when we're struggling with our sin nature and living in the devil's world, fighting the cosmic system, are things that we can't learn in eternity. Because there won't be a sin nature, there won't be Satan, there won't be that dimension of the angelic conflict. So we have to to develop that sense of our eternal destiny. And this is the emphasis in in Revelation, that the, the time is near. The emphasis on judgment, the emphasis on the fact that there is eventually going to be an evaluation. And to the overcomer, there will be a variety of different uh, rewards and blessings that are outlined in the uh, seven letters to the seven churches. As we move past adolescence, we get into adulthood, and we have to master certain uh, spiritual skills that are indicative of maturity. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't utilize these or these aren't a part of your life when you're a young believer, but they're not as much a part of your life because these advanced spiritual skills are based upon the previous skills. For example, our personal love for God. See, a lot of folks think of love as sort of an emotion, a feeling, a a sentiment. You come to church, you hear about God, and you go away feeling warm and fuzzy about God. But see, you can't love someone you don't know. And if you don't know the Bible, you can't understand who God is and where He's going and what He's doing, what His plans and purposes for mankind are, what His plans and purposes for your life are. So as you come to understand how God works in history and how God works in people's lives, what He has done for you, what He has supplied for you, what He is continuing to do in your life, then your love for Him increases. See, as you utilize the faith rest drill, as you understand His grace, as you understand doctrine, your love for God increases. As a result of that, you begin to realize that just as God loves you, 
and Jesus Christ loved you and gave himself for you, you were to love other people. We're to love one another just as Christ loved us. And so this is our impersonal love for all mankind. They may not be very lovable. They may not be very attractive. We may not want to love them. They may, in fact, be antagonistic to us. Nevertheless, we are to love them just as Christ loved those who are antagonistic to Him. And this leads us to a greater appreciation and focus on Jesus Christ. Because we are to love one another as Christ loved us. Where's the focus there? That focus is on Jesus Christ. So we have to spend a lot of time contemplating and meditating on who Jesus Christ is and what He's done. And, and okay, how does the cross exemplify the love of God? And how does that love that Christ showed me when I was a rebellious, antagonistic, obnoxious sinner, how does that love uh, then, how am, I, how am I going to imitate that, that love? So that implies a lot of knowledge of doctrine because it's not just this silly little superficial love that most people come up with. There are all kinds of dimensions to Jesus' love. Jesus is the same one who, remember in our study last week in 1 Corinthians, at the end of the tribulation there's a judgment called the sheep and the goat judgment. And the sheep are the believers in the tribulation who survive. The goats are the unbelievers. And Jesus says, depart from me into the eternal lake that has been a fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So the love of Jesus is also a love that sends unbelievers to eternal condemnation. Now, that's got to rattle your cage a little bit if you come out of a out of our world system, thinking that love is, is just one-dimensional and you don't have room for this. Then take that and add that to your concept of parental love and what that implies in terms of your role as a disciplinarian and as a leader in the home and one who not only uh, does positive things for your children in the sense of, of uh, good, kind, gentle things, but also someone who has to bring them before the... Uh, bar of your justice in the home and discipline them at times, sometimes with a hard discipline that's very difficult for you, but you do it because greater is your love for your child. So you are willing to put him through harsh discipline at times to prepare him uh, for adulthood. Now, all of this I link together, and I call that the uh, love complex. That's developing our mature love. And once you get there, the next thing that just unfolds is that we begin to have real profound, stable, tranquil joy in life. That's the consequence. We're able to count it all joy when we encounter various trials because we know the testing of our faith uh, produces endurance. We have this grounding in doctrine. All of these other skills are in place, and the result is contentment, tranquility, and happiness. Now, the two things in there that we're fo- we focus on in Revelation is our personal sense of our eternal destiny and our occupation with Christ. And John really brings that out in this opening section in Revelation 1, 4, and 5, really 4 through uh, 7, where he's focusing on Jesus Christ. Verse 4, he says, John... To the seven churches which are in Asia, these are seven churches chosen by God in the proconsular region of Asia. There we have our map of 
Asia, which is the shaded area here on the western coast of what is now Turkey, what was then referred to as Asia Minor. These churches are not in any particular order in the sense that you would not go to those churches or travel to them uh, down the same road. It's not like getting on 95 and first you'd go to Boston, then Providence, and then uh, New London, and then New Haven, and then New York, and then on down to Philadelphia. You know, that's all in a line. These churches aren't in a line. Furthermore, there were many other churches there. If we were to go take the time and to go back to Acts, we would see that on Paul's second missionary journey, he went to the previous churches he established down here in Galatia, and then he headed into Asia. But the Holy Spirit prohibited him from having a ministry in Asia. He said, no, you're not going to have a ministry in Asia at this time. And then Paul tried to head back to the northeast up here to Bithynia, and the Holy Spirit said, no, go this way. So it led him to the west, to Troas, which is over here on the coast just below the Dardanelles. And at Troas, the Holy Spirit gave him a vision of a man over here in, in northern Greece, this area called Macedonia, or as they pronounce it, Macedonia. And it was a, a Macedonian calling for Paul to come over and give them the gospel. So he hopped on a ship took a three-day journey over to uh, Neapolis, which is modern Kavala, and there he got off the ship and went to uh, Philippi, and the, the first convert in, on the European continent, see this area right here, the Dardanelles and the Bosphorus, this separates the continent of Asia from the continent of Europe. So his first convert's over there in Philippi, or we usually call it Philippi. Now, when, when, um, uh, so Paul didn't establish anything in Asia at that time. When he, at the end of the second journey, he goes to Ephesus, and then he establishes a church, and for two years he taught at the school of Tyrannus, and he is, um, from that point he sent out various teams all through Asia. So God has his plan and purposes and timing for everything, and even though he had prohibited Paul from having a ministry in Asia to begin with, Later, he had him send, send missionaries, and for two years, they established churches all over this part, this proconsular province known as Asia. But in Revelation, these are chosen, as we'll see, because they represent different types of churches throughout the church age. They, we'll, we'll get into a whole study on the, is there a cycle or pattern here? And I don't believe there is. But I think that every church can find its type in one of these seven churches. They represent uh, all the different kinds of churches that you see during the church age. So these are the seven churches of Revelation. And then we have the salutation, grace and peace. And we saw that this is clearly a... A Trinitarian salutation, because you have the same prepositional phrase, apokai, from the one who is and who was and who is to come, that's God the Father, from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and that is the throne of God the Father, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. So that is where we stopped the last time with our study of this threefold designation of Jesus as the faithful witness, 
the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Now, when we looked at that last time, I pointed out, although I didn't emphasize it, that this represents the three stages in Christ's career. We think of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. His role as prophet was first advent, where he is proclaiming the greatest revelation of God to mankind. That's the role of a prophet, remember, is to reveal God to man. A priest is one who brings men before God. A priest is someone who would bring men to the temple, offer sacrifices on their behalf so that they can come into the presence of God. A prophet was one who took God's revelation and gave it to man. And we're told in John chapter 1 that... that Jesus Christ is the greatest expression and revelation of God in human history. So he, in that role, he is the uh, faithful witness. And he is, and that refers to his role as a prophet. Then he is the firstborn from the dead. That's the resurrection of Christ when he is resurrected, receives his resurrection body, ascends to heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Not on His own throne. Revelation 3.21 says, To him who overcomes, that's that victorious believer, you read spiritual uh, maturity, then Jesus says, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. That's yet future. He's not on that throne yet. As I also overcame and sat down with my Father on His throne. That's where Jesus is right now, seated at the right hand of God the Father in His function as a priest. So prophet, during the first advent, He is our high priest right now, seated at the right hand of God the Father. And then King, even though He was born King of the Jews, He is, and He is King du jour, that means King by law in terms of who He is, He is not yet King de facto. He does not take the throne, become or activate the role of king until he returns at the second coming when he is takes up the throne of David and that is when he activates his title of king of kings and lord of lords. So faithful witness is first advent is prophet, firstborn from the king, second advent Uh, I mean, uh, excuse me, resurrection and ascension, his role as priest. And then the third phrase, the ruler over the kings of the earth, that refers to his future rule and reign as the king of kings and lord of lords. Now that first title, the faithful witness, we looked at this last time and a verse I mentioned was John 8.18 where Jesus said, I am one who bears witness of myself. And the Father who sent me bears witness of me. John 8, 18. In that verse, Jesus is indicating His role in this broader spiritual conflict we're all a part of that we call the angelic conflict. The, the word there translated witness is the Greek word martus. And it is the testimony of a legal witness. The testimony of a legal witness. It is somebody who's called in to give a deposition. They're sworn in and they're going to give evidence in a courtroom trial. Now, the issue in this trial, we look at human history in some senses like a trial, perhaps an appeal trial, that Satan is um, 
wanting in order to challenge God's, uh, God's decision to sentence Satan and the fallen angels, those uh, angels who followed him in his rebellion against God. Remember, in eternity past, after Lucifer, the greatest of all the angels, chose to rebel against God, he led a third of the angels in rebellion with him. Then God held a, held a, a courtroom session, a judgment, and the decision was made to send them to the lake of fire. So at Matthew 25:41, when Jesus said, says uh, to the, the goats there, the surviving tribulation unbelievers, he says, depart from me into the eternal fire that was prepared, past tense, prepared means it's already there, prepared for the devil and his angels. Well, if it's already prepared, why aren't they there? Why didn't they get sent there? They're already condemned. They're already judged. The inference is that there's been a challenge to that verdict, a challenge to that decision. And this gives us an understanding of the God's plan and purposes in all of human history and why things come to the conclusion they do in the, in the book of Revelation. And this focuses us on a couple of key ideas that are in or that are present in these titles and statements about Jesus in verse 5. The main issue in the angelic conflict, first and foremost, is the integrity of God. The integrity of God. The integrity of God includes three aspects of His character. First of all, His righteousness. His righteousness is the standard of His character. The Greek word dikaiosune refers to an absolute standard, an absolute character. And God is ultimate righteousness. He doesn't meet some external character of righteousness. He is righteousness. His character, who He is, defines the nature of righteousness. That's His standard. So everything has to meet His the standard of His own character. The second element in His integrity is His justice. The justice is the application of that standard to His creatures. So God, who is absolute perfection, has to apply that same standard to His creatures so that when a creature disobeys Him, then God applies the standard of His righteousness to their disobedience and reaches a judgment. The third element in His integrity is His love. You see, the love is what motivates Him so that you don't have a conflict between God's righteousness and His love. See, there's a lot of folks, we've all heard them, we've run into them, they say, well, how can a loving God send His creatures to a lake of fire? How can a loving God say, I have to do it this way to be saved? You see that every time you see some, some solid Christian interviewed on, on television by, by some liberal. I, I was so pleased last year on 60 Minutes when um, uh, Tim LaHaye and Tommy Ice and some others were uh, interviewed in relationship to that Left Behind series that, that uh, uh, LaHaye wrote, that Tommy's statement was just so clear that people are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. People are saved by personal trust in Jesus Christ as the one who died for their sins. No other way. And Morley Safer said, well, are you telling me that if I don't believe it the way you believe it, then we're not saved? See, there's always that element of hostility. He didn't say it quite that antagonistically, but that's the implication. 
How arrogant can you be as a Christian to say that your way is the only way? And I was so pleased that every person interviewed in that interview said, well, you know, that's not what I said. That's what the Bible says. See, this is what Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except by me. You see, God's love provided the perfect solution. God didn't stop with the condemnation of man, but He solved the problem. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross as a substitute for us that we might have eternal life. And so John 3.16 says, God loved us in this way, literal translation, that He sent His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So that the love of God provides the solution, and this is expressed through the grace of God, unmerited favor, unearned kindness. You know, we don't deserve any of this. If we got what we would deserve, we'd all be in the lake of fire. But God gives us something we don't deserve. He gives us a salvation. This is the expression of His love. His love is not in conflict with His righteousness. They work together. They are perfectly complementary. But if you're operating on another framework, if you're operating on some kind of postmodern, self-centered, autonomous framework, some religious framework, you can't understand it. As soon as somebody says, Jesus is the only way, but, but it's available to you, it's available to everybody, you can't understand that. Your mind immediately starts to put a spin on that and twist it into something else. So we see that the issue is the integrity of God because this is the same challenge that Satan threw before God in eternity past. How can you, as a loving God, sentence creatures to eternity in the lake of fire? I mean, what a horrendous punishment. I mean, it's not just for five or ten minutes or even five or ten years. It's forever. And so God says, well, we're going to have a little test case here. We're going to set up an experiment to demonstrate something. Remember, experiment is not something you do to find out what will happen. Well, that's why some of you do things. An experiment is something, technically, a, a laboratory procedure that you undertake to demonstrate a known truth. See, if any of you took chemistry, I always remember my college chemistry class. Well, we did all these things in, in the lab, but we knew what was supposed to happen, or generally we did. One morning... Uh, you know, it's amazing how God protects us. One morning I decided that uh, I slept in late. I had stayed up having a good time with friends the night before. And so uh, I slept late and I got to class and I forgot to bring my, my safety glasses. This was like the second week of school or the third week of school, my freshman year. And I forgot to bring my safety goggles. And so the first couple of days we weren't doing anything significant and and they let us slide, but they said, you know, after next Tuesday, if you show up without your safety goggles, you're out of here. You're going to be have an unexcused absence. Well, I showed up. I forgot my safety goggles. And I was standing at my laboratory desk. It's like I'm right here in front of the pulpit. And there was another laboratory desk right here. And this was where the instructor was performing his experiment. And it was one of these experiments. I forget the... Uh, chemicals now, but it was potassium permanganate and something else, and you heat it over the Bunsen burner, and the chemical reaction releases oxygen. And you take your little uh, 
your wooden splint and you light it on fire. You blow it out so it's just glowing embers. And you, you stick it down in the test tube and it goes poof because the, and it reignites because it's in an oxygen environment. Well, there was some impurities in one of the chemicals. And this guy turned around and looked at me just before he did this and he said, you didn't bring your goggles. You're out of here. So I walked out the door and I'd taken two steps out the door and there's this huge explosion. And, uh, it was some sort of impurity in the chemicals, and the uh, the instructor ended up blowing two of his fingers off. And, uh, of course, I was standing right there. I would have just gotten shrapnel all in me. So that was just the grace of God. Let's see, an experiment shouldn't go that way. You should know what's going to happen. And you know, under normal circumstances, if there's no impurity, you would know what's going to happen. See, that's what God's doing in history, is He's showing all of his creatures, what happens when there's sin. And he is responding to Satan, and of course we often think, have the same rationalization, oh, my sin's a white sin. My sin's just a simple little insignificant sin. It's not that, that important. But we don't understand all of the consequences that come about. And so God put Adam and the woman in the garden and planted the tree and said, This is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat from all the other trees, but if you eat from this one, instantly you will die. Now, that's an innocuous sin. We've studied this, and we know that, that, see, God is demonstrating that even the least little act of disobedience has horrendous consequences. All the wars, famines, suffering in human history are all the result of the fact that Adam ate a piece of fruit. Not, Not a big sin, but it's that little act of disobedience. So... God is demonstrating what happens in rebellion. Now, in Satan's rebellion, what he is doing is he's challenging, first of all, the integrity of God, and secondly, he is challenging the sovereignty of God as the creator of the universe to rule his universe according to his own standard, according to his own uh, righteousness. So Satan, first of all, challenges God's sovereignty and says, you don't have a right to rule. I want to be like God. I want to do it my way. And I have a right to demonstrate that as a creature, I can run the universe just fine on my own. Now, of course, this demonstrates arrogance. And in terms of Christian uh, virtues, it is a lack of humility. This is why, in, in contrast to Satan, the emphasis in the, in the person of Christ is that he demonstrated hum- humility to the point of going to the cross, that he was willing to suffer And in obedience to God, he humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. Satan secondly challenged God's integrity and his right to rule according to that standard. He said, I've got a better standard. And so God is demonstrating that standard fails, and Jesus Christ is demonstrating that only the standard of God, the standard of his righteousness, brings success in life. And ultimately, that standard is what is established when Jesus Christ comes back in his righteous rule, which is a rule of iron, uh, Psalm 2-7, as well as, as Revelation chapter, uh, chapter 3. He challenges God's love. He says that this isn't real love to send your creatures to the lake of fire. And instead, what he's doing is he's focusing on, now think about this. He's focusing on one creature's self-centered agenda. He said, this guy ought to have his way. Satan says, I ought to have my way. 
as opposed to focusing on all of the damage, all the pain, all the consequences to all the other victims. See, this is the same argument you get from folks who say, well, you know, we shouldn't punish these criminals this way. See, they've forgotten the victims. They've forgotten the effect that that has on everybody. And they're basically saying this criminal needs to be allowed to have his selfish, arrogant way and do whatever he wants to, no matter what damage it causes to everybody else. And they think that's love. And what God is saying is, no, that's not love at all. Because you have to have your focus on the victim, not on the criminal. And what we're going to demonstrate in the history of mankind is that Satan's crime has horrible consequences on everybody else, and it would not be an act of love to allow one selfish person to harm so many others in that way. The result of all this, of course, is what we'll call the appeal trial of Satan, that human history is really Satan's appeal and a demonstration to God, I mean a demonstration to creatures of God's integrity, of God's love, and of his sovereignty, his right to rule. And as part of this trial, Jesus Christ, the eternal second person of the Trinity, enters into human history in hypostatic union. Undiminished deity took on true humanity. We studied this recently in our series on who is Jesus. He took on true humanity and became the central witness in this appeal trial so that he demonstrates that the creature, because he is now a creature having taken on humanity, that the creature cannot live independently of the Creator and he demonstrates that he lives in complete and total dependence upon the Creator and demonstrates all the values, all of the virtues of the Christian life and the fact that in the devil's world, a person who is perfectly righteous ends up being uh, wrongfully executed. And it's a demonstration that when you operate apart from the Creator, everything is going to be turned upside down, topsy-turvy. Right becomes wrong, and wrong becomes right. Black becomes white, white becomes black. You can't see the truth anymore because you're living in self, self-deception. So that's the emphasis of that first title, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. It takes us right into the angelic conflict. The firstborn from the dead does as well because at the resurrection, at the ascension, Jesus Christ is elevated over all the angels. We studied that in Ephesians 1, 17 to 20. He ascends above all principalities and powers to be seated at the right hand of God the Father. His title, faithful witness, is also an allusion to the Davidic covenant, his fulfillment of the Davidic covenant in Psalm 89:37, He's the faithful witness, and he's the firstborn from the dead, and that too is a title that goes back to Psalm 89, that he is the firstborn. So all of these titles take Old Testament covenant promises and take them into the person of Jesus Christ, showing that he is the one who fulfills these Old Testament promises in his person. He is the true heir to the Davidic covenant. He is the faithful witness. And in his, in his function as the faithful witness, he faithfully demonstrates to us how to live the Christian life. We've studied this many times, that Christ set the precedent for the spiritual life. 
The spiritual life he had wasn't the spiritual life of the Old Testament, which was based on the Mosaic Law. It was a spiritual life based on the indwelling and the filling of the Holy Spirit, and he is modeling that for the church-age believer. And he is faithful in a number of ways. He is, first of all, faithful to demonstrate and reveal to us the attributes of God in relation to immutability, dependability, and integrity. He is faithful in his demonstration and revelation of the attributes of God. He is faithful in his function as in true humanity during the incarnation. He never once disobeys God. He never once lives on the basis of his own will independently from the Father. He is, third, faithful in his mission to supply salvation, to go to the cross and pay the penalty for our sins. Fourth, he is faithful in his mission to set the precedent for the church age and to demonstrate how to walk by means of the Holy Spirit. And he is faithful in his teaching. So he's the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, indicating his resurrection and ascension. And then he is the ruler over the kings of the earth. Now, last time I pointed out that these are just some of the titles that we find for Jesus in the New Testament. And here are some others. He is called Jesus Christ. This is not just a personal name. Remember, it's a title. He is Jesus HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. In 1-1, 1-1, 1-2, and 1-5. He's called the faithful witness in 1-5. He is the firstborn from the dead in 1-5. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth in 1-5. He's the Alpha and the Omega in one let me see, I may challenge my own note there. He's the Alpha and the Omega in 111. Not 18, but 111. Uh, and 216 and 2213. He's called the Son of Man in 113 and 1414. I'm going to go through these really fast because there's a lot of them. If I take time, we'll be here all morning. He's the first and the last, number seven. He's the first and the last, 117, 28, and 2213. The first and the last. In uh, the eighth title, he is called the one who lives in 118. The one who lives in contrast to being dead. He is in verse, I mean, not number nine. He's called the one who holds the seven stars. That's a title. In 2-1, the one who holds the seven stars. Ten, he's called the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands in 2-1. Number eleven. He's called the one who has a sharp two-edged sword in 2.12. Uh, number 12, he's called the Son of God in 2.18. Uh, 13, he's called the one who has eyes like a flame of fire in chapter 2, verse 18. Uh, 14, he's called the one whose feet are like fine brass in 2.18. And number 15, he, he's the one who is he who searches the minds and hearts, 2.23. He who searches the minds and hearts. 16, he's called the Lord holy and true in 610, the Lord holy and true. 17, he's called the Lord who was crucified in 118. He is called he who has the seven spirits of God in 31. 19, he's called he who is holy and who is true in in 37. And 20, he's called he who has the key of David in 37. He is called the Amen in 314. 
Uh, 22, he's called the faithful and true witness. 314. Uh, 23, he's called the beginning of the creation of God. Uh, 314. 24, he's called the lion from the tribe of Judah. In 55. In 25, he's called the root of David. In 55, and in Revelation 22:16. Uh, 26, 28 times in Revelation, he's called the lamb. That is the primary reference to Jesus. He is the lamb who was sacrificed before the foundation of the earth. He is the male child, 27. The male child in 12, 5 and 13. He's the king of the nations in 15, 3. That's 28. The king of the nations. In 29, he's called the Lord of Lords and King of Kings in 17, 14 and 19, uh, 16. 19, 16. Uh, 29 was Lord of Lords and King of Kings. 30, he's the Word of God, 19, 13. And 31, the bright Morning Star 22:16. All of these titles for Jesus. He is the focus of this book. He is uh, the one that we are to be occupied with. So he, these three titles emphasize his role as prophet, priest, and king, past, present, and future. He is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. And then after he has said this, John is just, his focus is so much on what Jesus has done, he has moved to another and a greater expression of devotion to Jesus Christ. And he has this statement of devotion in verse 5. It is to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. The last part of verse 5. To him who loves us, actually, that's how it should be translated, to him who loves us and washed us from our sins by means of his own blood. Now, some of you have a, perhaps have something a little different in your translation. This is a problem we're going to run into again and again in the book of Revelation. And I don't want to get bogged down in doing a study of how we got the Bible. But we have to do it a little bit to understand these differences. You see, when the Bible was written, uh, let's just take Revelation. John was given this revelation. He wrote it down. Uh, we believe in inerrancy. He is inspired by God so that what he wrote was without error in the original manuscripts. That means there were no mistakes. He wrote it in the original, and he probably wrote seven copies because he was to send the whole book to each of the seven churches. So there were seven inerrant copies. Well, when Ephesus got their copy, they decided that uh, uh, somebody was there visiting from Heropolis, and they wanted to take a copy back home with them. Somebody else was there from another church, maybe down in Miletus, and they wanted to take a copy home with them. So they sat down, and they began to make copies of these letters. Well, we all know we make mistakes when we copy. Sometimes we add words. Sometimes we add letters. Sometimes our eyes skip from one line to another, and we take a phrase in one line, and we put it in another. No matter how closely we proofread, and trust me, I've been involved in a lot of proofreading in my life, in writing and editing, that you, you never get it perfect. I don't care how many times you proofread it, you never, ever get it perfect. You can go over it again and again and again and again, and somebody's going to find something that you missed. And uh, that, that always happens. So errors crept into the copies. Now, these aren't errors that 
uh, affect doctrine or affect teaching. They're, they're, they're minor things like what we have here. In, in some ancient manuscripts, what you have is the phrase, uh, to him who loves us. It's a present act, uh, or present, uh, participle. In other ancient manuscripts, what you have is an aorist tense, to him who loved us. Well, which is it? Well, this brings into play a, a whole discipline called textual criticism. And you have it in every discipline that deals with ancient texts. I remember when I was working on my master's degree in medieval philosophy that I was impressed that you had critical... Ed- and you See, these are called critical editions. You have a critical edition of Thomas Aquinas. See, we don't have what Thomas Aquinas originally wrote. We have a lot of copies. There are differences. And what they'll do is, is you'll, you'll read in your, like in a Greek New Testament, down at the bottom, there will be various uh, notations and, though, and footnotes. And those relate to uh, textual variants. And, and they'll list which manuscripts have what readings in them. And certain manuscripts have more value than other manuscripts. And so you learn uh, how to weigh those and make decisions as to uh, what the original what the original said. And it seems most likely to me that, based on the evidence, that the best reading is that which you find in your New American Standard, which is a present active indicative. That's also in what's called the majority text. To him who loves us. It's a present tense emphasizing God's ongoing love for us. Not just that which was part of salvation, but the ongoing love of Christ for the believer after salvation. Because that's part of what this, this book is all about. So it is, John says it's to him who loves us, not just the one who loved us. If you've got King James or New King James, you have a past tense there. But that seemed to be pretty much restricted to those few manuscripts used in the Textus Receptus and many of the other manuscripts and not only more recent discovery or older manuscripts, but many other manuscripts in that majority text tradition has the idea of the present tense who loves us. So he loves us ongoing. This is why I went back to review the angelic conflict. This is an expression of God's love for us, his integrity, that he is the one who continues to love us no matter what happens, what our failures are. And see, when we get into the seven letters to the seven churches, there's a whole catalog of failures for some of those churches. But He is the one who still loves us. He's the one who still loves you, no matter what your failures may be as a believer, no matter how you have sinned, no matter how you've disappointed Him, no matter what has happened, His love never changes. It doesn't increase. It doesn't diminish. It is always the same. He is the one who continuously loves us. And then the second thing we read there that's related to it is He loves us, but this is a past tense. He washed us from our sins by His own blood. And this again brings in a second textual problem. You see, I've written this on the overhead or got it up on the screen. In some ancient manuscripts you have the word lusanti, spelled L-U-S-A-N-T-I. And that is from the root luo, which I have written below here. This is the verb luo, which means to loose or to release. The idea there would be he released us from our sins. He paid the penalty, indicating redemption. Well, that's true. He released us from our sins by means of his blood. He paid the penalty for our sins. 
Well, there's another word that's in a lot of ancient manuscripts, and it's also probably pronounced Lasanti. And that's it. So it sounds the same, but yet you have this letter O instead of L U S A N T I. It's L O U S A N T I. See the difference in just one letter. But here's the difference in the root verb Lu O or Lu O. See it's L U O or L O U O. The first word L U O means to release, to loose from something. Lu O L L O U Omega is the word for wash. Now, are we washed from our sins? Yeah, that image is used throughout Scripture. So they're both true. And you have to scratch your head. You have to do a lot of work and say, okay, I can't solve this just on internal evidence. I went through the uh, use of, of uh, the, the concept of blood, uh, the use of the word blood all through the Scriptures, and you don't have anything uh, of either word used anywhere else. Acts 20:28. 20, he purchased us with his blood. Uh, Romans 3:25. We're propi- he was a propitiation by means of his blood. Romans 5:9. We're justified by means of his blood. Ephesians 1:7. We have redemption uh, by means of his blood. So there's a similar idea. Uh, it's from the uh, word apolutrosis, and you have that L-U, which is you know etymologically related at least. Ephesians 2:13. We're brought near by means of the blood. Colossians 1.20, were made peace is made through the blood of His cross. Hebrews 9.14, the blood of Christ cleanses us, cleanses our conscience. Katharizo, that's an idea similar to washing. Uh, Hebrews 9.22, we're purified by the blood again. Katharizo. Hebrews 10.24, He takes away our sins by means of the blood. Hebrews 13.12, we're sanctified by His blood. 1 Peter 1.18, we're redeemed by His blood. Lutrao. First uh, John one seven, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. First uh, John one seven, Revelation five nine, we're purchased by His blood, and Revelation seven fourteen says that we will wash, or the tribulation saints, martyrs will wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb. So we don't have a parallel, but I think based on the manuscript evidence and which manuscripts there are, that the idea of washing is the primary idea. Now, what does that mean to be washed, to have our sins washed by His blood? Well, it's a metaphor for having our sins paid for by His death on the cross. This is the work that He did at the first advent. And we'll come back next time to find out just what the extent of that metaphor means and you know, what, the, what the doctrine is covered by, washed from our sins by His own blood. With our heads bowed, and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you that we have such a clear statement of who our Lord Jesus Christ is and what he did for us on the cross, that he paid the penalty for our sins so that we are freed. We are indeed cleansed from our sins because of his death on the cross. He paid the penalty. Therefore, there's nothing for us to add to that. We have salvation simply by accepting Him as our Savior, trusting Him, relying upon Him exclusively as our Savior. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone to trust in Him, and at that instant, You are regenerated. You are born again. You have eternal life that can never 
be taken from you. This is your opportunity to have eternal salvation. Father, we thank you for the things that we studied today. We pray that you would challenge us with them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.